1: Hello, and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm your host, Ora Ogumbi. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Same-sex marriage has been legalized in many countries over the past decade. But as family structures evolve, so must the laws. Now, Britain is re-examining its rules on surrogacy. And our correspondent takes us on a foraging adventure where he luckily finds a good bunch of ramps. He won't tell us where he discovered this love child of garlic and spring onions, but he does have some tips on how to whip them up for dinner. But first... Today, President Joe Biden and Kevin McCarthy, the Speaker of the House of Representatives, will meet to discuss the rather pressing problem of America's debt ceiling. America is fast approaching the X date of June the 1st, when Janet Yellen, the Treasury Secretary, says the country could run out of money to pay its bills.
2: I just finished a phone call with the president. Uh, He's still flying back. —
1: Mr. Biden and Mr. McCarthy spoke on the phone yesterday, ahead of today's meeting. —
2: What I'm looking at are where our differences are and how could we um, solve those. And I I felt that part was uh, productive. But look, there's no agreement. We're still apart. — Speaking
1: yesterday at the end of the G7 summit, Joe Biden called demands from Republicans in the House unacceptable. It's time
3: for Republicans to accept that there is no bipartisan deal to be made solely, solely on their partisan terms.
1: The president has now hurried back to Washington. The debt ceiling, which is the hard limit on how much the government can borrow, is currently set at $31.4 trillion, which is about 117% of GDP. But unless Congress agrees to raise or waive the limit, America will default. There is much at stake, and not just for America. The dollar is the world's reserve currency. This problem has been faced before and always overcome. But in the face of deepening partisan divides, this time, negotiations are proving particularly tricky.
2: America's debt showdown has become something of a perennial event in the country's politics. This time around, though, it seems potentially much more serious than previous encounters.
1: Simon Rabinovich is The Economist's U.S. economics editor. You
2: know, America has never defaulted on its sovereign bonds before. Depending on how things go, it could be approaching its first default in 246 years.
1: And Simon... Before we get into the solutions, remind us, what is at stake here if America defaults?
2: A default by the American government is something that would be almost unthinkable in terms of its consequences. The US dollar is obviously the world's reserve currency. More than that, U.S. government debt treasuries are the closest thing there is to a risk-free asset in financial markets. Corporate cash managers rely on them because they are ultra safe. They're used by traders throughout the world as a form of collateral in all kinds of trades they make, and they underpin deals and arrangements throughout global markets. You know, the White House has estimated that were the standoff to last for a quarter, we could be looking at a 45% fall in the stock market. Moody's, a ratings agency, has said that, you know, even a relatively short-term default could lead the unemployment rate to spike to more than 8%. You know, in, in absolute numbers, that would mean upwards of 6 to 7 million Americans losing their jobs. We would be talking about a financial and economic crisis. On the scale of what happened in 2008 in the global financial crisis, U.S. credit ratings would be downgraded. That would be a threat not just to short-term financial stability, but also to America's long-term economic and financial standing. This is why everybody says that it's unthinkable. Uh, Unfortunately, you know, a week away from the potential deadline, sadly, it is becoming something that people do have to think about. They do have to consider what the downside risks are.
1: So President Biden and the Republican Speaker in the House of Representatives, Kevin McCarthy, are due to meet for talks today. How will they attempt to work things out?
2: So the challenging thing now, as ever, is that there needs to be an agreement between Democrats and Republicans that would allow the debt ceiling to be raised, that would allow the Treasury uh, to resume borrowing cash. That's always the basic issue. This time around, what makes things more difficult is that American politics have grown increasingly polarised. If you look at the current configuration in Congress, It just goes to show how the hurdles have become that much higher. Kevin McCarthy has a very narrow majority, which gives more power to those at the right wing fringe of the Republican Party, the so-called Freedom Caucus. Meanwhile, the Democrats have a very slim majority in the Senate, which gives more power to progressives within the Democratic Party. And they're very concerned that Biden might give away too much in a deal with the Republicans. The short answer is that there has to be some agreement that's acceptable to both parties that would involve some degree of spending cuts in exchange for an agreement from the Republicans in the House to lift the debt ceiling. But the path to getting that is quite fraught. There is a lot of talk about possible plan B's if an agreement cannot be reached. And the next week is going to be a real nail biter.
1: And what are those plan B's then? Are they realistic?
2: If there is not an agreement we have had a fair bit of discussion about possible workaround solutions. The one that previously received the most attention, partly just because it seemed so novel, was the idea that the Treasury could mint a trillion dollar coin. By law, the Treasury can mint commemorative coins made of platinum of any denomination. The idea was the Treasury would mint a massive coin, deposit it at the Federal Reserve, and then the Treasury could draw on that deposit to pay down its obligations and liabilities as they come due. The problem with that is that it's purely a massive gimmick. It would be subject to legal challenge. Janet Yellen, Treasury Secretary, has said that the U.S. is not going to go down that path. So another workaround solution that seems a bit more credible and certainly intellectually more legitimate is the idea that the White House could cite the 14th Amendment of the Constitution, which says that the validity of America's public debt shall not be questioned. And the idea there is that they could basically say that the debt ceiling is unconstitutional. The Treasury has committed to all of these expenditures. It's committed to paying bondholders back. And those commitments and the sanctity of American debt override the debt ceiling, which is purely a political creation. And so they can go ahead and basically ignore the debt ceiling, resume borrowing, get back to business as usual. The problem with the 14th Amendment and other possible legal workarounds is that they're also subject to legal challenge. It's not a clear-cut case that the White House would be able to prevail, especially given the conservative composition of the Supreme Court today. There would be a lot of doubts in financial markets about whether or not this legal solution is actually viable. So I I don't think either of these workarounds are actually going to be effective.
1: In which case, a lot is riding on Mr. Biden and Mr. McCarthy finding some common ground today.
2: Well, I guess the good news is that the, the level of panic in Washington is most definitely rising. But both President Biden and Speaker McCarthy have very tricky needles to thread. McCarthy has got to satisfy the fringe of the Republican Party that there are going to be big spending cutbacks. President Biden has to satisfy the fringe of the Democratic Party that the spending cutbacks are not going to fundamentally undermine his legacy to date. So he's absolutely dead set on protecting America's big climate change investments, as well as the range of investments to bolster the social security system and Medicare. Trying to find a bridge between these two camps uh, is going to be incredibly difficult. It is going to require some level of market panic to focus minds in D.C. and to make clear to the Republican Party and the Democratic Party that there has to be a solution. Ultimately, when that solution comes forward, it may just be a kicking of the can down the road a little bit. The initial Republican demand was just to lift the debt ceiling until potentially mid-2024, before the next presidential election, which would make the next debt ceiling crisis that much more politically contentious. Uh, The Democrats would, at the very least, like to lift the debt ceiling until potentially 2025, beyond the next presidential election. But the sad fact of the matter is that this political theater has become a regular part of the budgeting process in America holding not just the American economy hostage, but also the global economy hostage. And I think in the next week, we're going to see just how incredibly unsettling that can be.
1: Simon, thank you so much for coming on the show.
2: Thank you, Ore.
0: With the highest number of young STEM graduates per capita in the EU, Ireland has the people and skills your company needs to succeed here. IDA Ireland, the National Investment Development Agency, can help you find and nurture the people you need to internationalise and thrive. Our talent is just one of the extraordinary benefits Ireland has to offer. Learn more at IDAireland.com Invest in Extraordinary
2: You're obsessed with the
4: microphone, aren't you? I'll have to take this one off for you. Do you want some more milk? Yes, please, Daddy. Yes, please. I'm Tom, and this is my lovely husband, Gareth. Hello. This is our baby, Edie, and she was born in December last year. I can't believe we've been together. Coming up to... What is it? Eight years? eight years. Eight years. And we're going to be celebrating our fourth wedding anniversary in August. Oh, God, it's gone so quickly, hasn't it? It's gone so <laughs> quick. And particularly since we've had our bundle of joy arrive in December. The topic of children was always really important from the very beginning. And I think after we got married, we looked into adoption and then really sort of dived into the idea of surrogacy. I think surrogacy was something that was super special. We wanted to have a relationship with our surrogate. I think we didn't want to have something that was transactional. No, it's probably one of the most selfless acts that anybody could do. She'll always be a part of Edie's life. She'll always be a part of our lives. And we've got this amazing relationship.
5: Do you agree? (laughs) You
6: agree, don't you? About 400 babies are born each year via surrogacy in Britain, but it's becoming a lot more common than it once was. And that's almost entirely because of the rise of gay male couple families.
1: Meehan Ridge is a Britain correspondent for The Economist.
6: The increase means that the laws that relate to surrogates and parents and the way the system works are moving to keep up.
1: Now, before we talk about how the system is changing, does this increase in surrogacy mean
6: that it's now fully accepted as a way to start a family? So surrogacy is still quite controversial, but it's certainly become a lot more socially acceptable than it once was. That's partly because celebrities have gushed about it very openly, but it also reflects the fact that families are changing. This first became obvious in the field of adoption. By 2022, 540 of nearly 3,000 adoptions in England that's more than one in six, were made by same-sex couples. But it remains the case that most people who want children want babies and there have long been too few of those available to satisfy demand. Lesbian couples can use a sperm donor, that's a relatively straightforward process. Gay couples instead use surrogacy. Surrogacy agencies say there is a small but growing number of single gay men who want to use surrogates and that mirrors to some extent the growth of single women deciding to have children on their own. But surrogacy is obviously a lot more complicated. In Britain at the moment, both surrogacy and wider fertility interventions are highly regulated and these rules are starting to look out of date. So how do the laws and rules around surrogacy work at the moment? So in Britain, unlike most European countries, altruistic surrogacy, that means surrogacy that can't be profit-making, is allowed. Surrogates can be paid expenses, which anecdotal evidence suggests is about £15,000, sometimes more, sometimes less. And it's chiefly these days of the gestational type. That means that a donor or the intended mother provides the egg, the father provides the sperm, and the surrogate carries the fertilised egg. And under the current system, the intended parents, that means the parents who are going to end up with the baby, apply to become legal parents after the birth, and in most cases, after they've actually taken the baby home.
1: Tell us more about that process of intended parents becoming legal parents.
6: In 2014, the same year that same-sex marriage was legalised in the UK, a law was passed to allow same-sex couples to apply for parental orders. And these allow intended parents in the surrogacy arrangement legal parenthood. The dads you heard at the start applied for a parental order for their baby girl who's now several months old. This system of parental orders protects the maternal rights of the surrogate because the baby's hers by law, and if she changes her mind, she can keep the baby.' But there are some drawbacks with the parental order system, which is why change was needed. And what will that change look like? So under the current system, as I explained earlier, parents tend to take surrogate-born babies home immediately, but then they can wait up to a year to get the parental orders that allowed them to become legal parents. And this is obviously anxious making for everyone. The surrogate could change her mind and keep the baby, which is legally hers at, at the moment. An intended parent might also reconsider or become unable to look after the child for some reason.
4: The relationship that you have is definitely built on trust. You have to trust that they are going to help you achieve your goal of becoming a family. But also they have to trust that you are going to take your baby.
6: So Gareth and Tom have still not gained full parental rights to their baby, even though she went home with them several months ago.
4: I think for us, we were very lucky in terms of the relationship that we have with our surrogates, so that it was a relationship that was always built on trust. So we never felt insecure throughout this whole process.
6: Surrogacy contracts aren't enforceable in Britain like they are in countries like America. So at any time until the, the parental order comes through, that baby could, could go back to its surrogate mother. But I should add that that almost never happens. The Law Commission, which is an independent body that reviews laws in England and Wales and suggests changes when necessary, has proposed that the parental orders be ditched now for babies born in Britain.
1: But if they're going to ditch the parental orders, then
6: what will replace them? The Law Commission suggests instead that intended parents can apply for legal parental rights from birth and to do this they and their surrogate should undergo screening and safeguarding checks that are overseen by non-profit surrogacy organizations which are licensed by the human fertilization and embryology authority so to protect the surrogate who currently could keep the baby if she wishes they suggest that there should be this six-week period after the birth during which she can apply for a parental order herself if she changes her mind as i said earlier this happens very rarely nonetheless some do worry. that this will make it too hard for a surrogate to keep the baby she's given birth to if she wishes to. Having said that, the recommendations have been broadly welcomed.
4: I think this will make people feel less vulnerable throughout the whole process, because right now, on both sides, because right now it is the unity of trust, isn't it? Correct. Rather than actually having a legal backbone.
6: One problem with the new proposal is that the regulations won't cover the one in three, roughly, surrogate babies in Britain who were born overseas. And this is a problem because parents are often driven to go abroad where surrogates can be paid because of the shortage of surrogates in the UK where they can't be paid.
1: And are regulators in Britain considering allowing paid surrogacy?
6: No, neither the Law Commission nor the HFEA, the Regulatory Authority, are considering removing the need for altruistic donation, either for for gametes, sperm or eggs, or surrogacy. That's because of fears of exploitation, basically. The likelihood of coercion is always much greater when money's involved. But I spoke to Natalie Gamble, the co-director of a law firm that specialises in fertility cases, and she says that if surrogates were compensated in a regulated manner, more British women might consider it, that the shortage is driving people overseas, and in some cases to countries where women are more likely to be exploited. However, I think it's worth adding that the current guidance says that surrogates may be paid expenses reasonably incurred, which routinely tot up to about £15,000. Those sorts of sums aren't nothing, especially for a stay-at-home mother who wouldn't otherwise be earning. Under the new system, where they have to show more rigorously what the expenses are, I don't think there's thinking that the money would necessarily go down and that there will be some room for intended parents to show generosity to the mother no courts ever refused to grant a parental order because the expenses seem a bit steep, because that would effectively mean taking a baby away from its parents. So the Law Commission says that far from allowing compensation, the law should clarify what expenses are allowable to ensure surrogates are fairly treated without being exposed to the risk of exploitation. And they also recommend that there should be some advertising allowed to make it easier for intended parents to find women who are prepared to help them. Previously, that was completely forbidden.
1: And Mian, in your view, will these new laws increase the number of women considering becoming surrogate mothers and without compromising the safety of children?
6: I think it's too early to say, but I think the guidance is quite sensible making surrogacy tightly regulated while ensuring that on one side parents and on the other surrogate mothers but most importantly babies are protected is a very difficult balancing act. There's a controversy at the moment on one side people say surrogacy is always exploitative of, of the woman and the baby that's created on the other you have people saying that the system should respond to the lack of supply by commercializing it. Given that surrogacy is going to happen anyway, and it is happening anyway, and it's undoubtedly a great development that gay men can now have their own babies, I think the plan to regulate more tightly but improve the system in a way that puts the children at the centre of the process strikes a sensible, reasonable balance. But I don't think that means that the topic's going to stop prompting strong feelings.
1: Mian, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Ori. Are
6: you done with your press conference?
5: yeah
1: we're always trying to improve our podcasts and we'd like your help whether you're a loyal fan or a newer listener we want to hear from you Please do us a huge favor and tell us what you think by filling out our listener survey. It'll only take you a few minutes. Just head to economist.com slash intelligence survey.
5: On the first warm weekend of spring, after a very long winter in the American Northeast, my family and I headed into the woods to go foraging.
1: John Fasman is our American business and society correspondent, and he also writes for our World in a Dish column.
5: It was a beautiful day. It wasn't just that it was a relief to feel warmth after so many months of cold, but it was legitimately lovely. So you had this beautiful mixture of warm weather and beautiful views from everywhere in the woods. But I was looking on the ground instead of around me. We were foraging for ramps, wild onions that have a very brief growing season in the Northeast and Midwest. It's really only a few weeks that you find them in farmer's markets. They taste like a combination of garlic and spring onions with a peppery edge. And you see them here and there on the forest floors. They have very trim, slender leaves. They're similar to what in Europe you might call wild garlic or ramsin. So we went out and gathered as much of them as we could. The object of foraging is obviously to bring home things you can eat from the woods. But that's not the point of foraging any more than the point of fishing is to bring home fish. The point of fishing and foraging is to connect with nature, to put your phone down, to really look at things that you take for granted. And we were looking for one particular crop, but I knew that The woods of the Northeast have more than just ramps, and I wanted to talk to someone who knew more than I did. So I went out a couple of weeks later with James O'Neill, who is a forager in Beacon, New York.
3: We're standing in a stand of tulip trees, or yellow poplar, they're also known as. So this time of year is uh, morel season. So if you're looking for morel mushrooms, you're looking for trees first. Let Let me get this guy over here on the weekends you have thousands of people come up to go hiking and they just pass this place and you know it's uh, it's amazing to see everybody just go on a hike and, and never really take time to look at what's around them you know they're, they're going for the view they're going for the exercise but just slowing down this is an exercise in slowing down you know and really just stopping i even get on my hands and knees and crawl you know cuz uh you're kind of looking for you're looking for a very camouflaged mushroom that really looks like almost everything we're looking at on the forest floor here and how sick are you gonna get from eating a false morel oh uh, you can die yeah yeah so uh, they say the uh, the poisonous uh, compound in it is uh, is one of the same ingredients that's in uh, jet fuel so like if you were to drink jet fuel you wouldn't do so well yeah so eating a false morel you wouldn't do so well either yeah mm-hmm. Now I did
5: not forage for morels. I don't go mushrooming. I just don't know the different species well enough. And as James said, there are some real risks in picking the wrong ones. But I did appreciate going out with him, finding out just how much was edible in the woods around us. You had sassafras, which you can strip the bark off and make into a tea. It tastes kind of like root beer. There's an invasive species here called garlic mustard, which is the bane of a lot of gardeners. But if you eat one of the leaves, it really does taste like a bitter green with a garlic flavor. It's delicious. It's the sort of thing that you could easily see tossing into pasta. And all of this stuff was just in abundance all around us. So it really was a way to see the familiar anew. So the first time forager should be prepared to come home empty-handed. You're really going out there to look more than to take. Now, while know. I didn't and don't forage for wild mushrooms, I do love cooking with them. And I was very lucky. Someone gave me a small packet of dehydrated morels. And that's a common practice. In the springtime, if you know where to look, you can find them just in abundance. Too much to eat. So one way to make sure you have access to them throughout the year is to dry them. We're making mom a... Toast with poached eggs and creamed morels. Okay. And I made them for lunch for my wife on Mother's Day. We sauteed them with some shallots in duck fat and added a bit of cream and mustard and served them over toast with a poached egg. How did it smell, kid?
1: Mm, really good. Like, um, salty and funky and fatty.
5: And it was sort of a spur-of-the-moment rustic French dish that came off very well. And so while it's true that foraging is a sort of patient Zen-like practice, there are rewards and those rewards can really be delicious. So I suppose there's a question of whether foraging is worth the effort. And it's something people ask about fishing as well. I've been fishing off and on for almost 30 years and I probably can count the number of fish I've caught on two hands. But every one of those fishing trips has been worth it as a respite from daily life. And that's what foraging is, too. It's a way to get out in nature, to get away from your desk, to not be tempted to pick up your phone or check your phone, to slow down your breathing and your eyes and just to appreciate what's around you a bit more. Perfect. Perfect. All right. There we go. Cream morels.
1: all for this episode of the intelligence let us know what you think of the show you can drop us a line at podcasts at and if you're not a subscriber to the economist you're really missing out
0: with the highest number of young stem graduates per capita in the eu ireland has the people and skills your company needs to succeed here ida ireland the national investment development agency can help you find and nurture the people you need to internationalise and thrive. Our talent is just one of the extraordinary benefits Ireland has to offer. Learn more at idaireland.com. Invest in extraordinary.
1: Dive in. Get a free 30-day digital subscription by going to economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. We'll see you back here tomorrow.